Welcome to the Genealogy Gems Podcast. It's a show filled with family history research strategies and techniques, news and entertainment, and inspiration. And I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Hello and welcome to Genealogy Gems Podcast episode number 231. It's July of 2019, but of course, here at Genealogy Gems, it doesn't matter what time of year it is because we are always going to talk about genealogy, and that is a year-long pursuit, is it not? I know many of you are in your cars and your RVs and on planes traveling to ancestral locations, and um, I am always so proud to hear when you guys take the podcast along with you. I just got back from speaking at the McHenry County Genealogical Society that's in Illinois. And it was about, I'd say we took about an hour drive from the Chicago airport to get out near Crystal Lake and a beautiful area out there in Illinois. And I heard from so many people, as I always do at live events, who said, I'm walking with you. I'm driving with you. You drove here with me. (laughs) It's pretty cool. That is one of the best parts about um, speaking around the country and around the world like I do, which is getting to meet you all face to face and hear that you're listening to the show. And and, oh, my gosh, the stories I heard from people about things they had accomplished. Maybe they heard a little something on the show and they ran with it. You know, that's the key. You got to run with it. Those ideas. So we're hoping to bring some additional gems to you in today's episode. And I know we're going to because we're going to be visiting. Well, do I call her an old friend? No, we'll just, we'll be visiting a friend of the show, Julianne Mangin. Now you might remember Julianne from Genealogy Gems podcast episode number 219. And that was all about her Medi family. And it was kind of my first foray into kind of taking a storytelling approach to doing a podcast episode. I really, really enjoyed doing that. I hope you took a listen to it. If you haven't, I highly recommend going back and listening to it. It's one of my personal favorites. And um, so I just thought it'd be great to check back in with Julianne and see what she's been up to since we last spoke. And my goodness, she's been up to a lot. So um, she's got an interesting story to share, a new, you know, line of the family tree that she's been working on. And we'll be talking about some of the strategies that she followed to uncover that story. And also, she's got a really unique project going on. It's a little twist on what we usually do as genealogists. So I'll just leave it at that. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. I made a list for myself of just some of the stuff that's been passing through my desk, passing through my computer monitor, newsy items, things I think would just be interesting to you and are kind of interesting, considering that we've talked about similar topics here on the show. So let's just jump into a couple of these newsy items. Um, Okay, so Jennifer, who's been a longtime premium member, she lives out in California. She sent me a fascinating item recently, and she says, thought you might get a kick out of today's blurb from Google, where they pat themselves on the back for what can be done with Google Earth. No argument from me. It's amazing. (laughs) So what can be done with Google Earth besides creating family history projects, putting together an historic map collection, plotting out your ancestors' lives? Yeah, those are all the things of course, that I write about in my book, and that all of you who are premium members have been watching on class videos. I just think Google Earth is really one of the best genealogical software programs you could possibly use. And that's not even what it was made for, but it's good at it. Anyway, the article that Jennifer sent me is really cool. So 
this gentleman named Peter Welch. He has an organization called Weekend Wanderers over in the UK, and he has used Google Earth to find treasure. So I'm going to have a link in the show notes for you for this one. I think it's it's a fun, very quick read, but you can see how he takes Google Earth to help him plot out where he's going to do his treasure hunting. Have you ever used a, um, a metal detector? That's what he does, right? They have the earphones, so they can hear the little pinging and things going on below the surface of the of the ground. And they just move the metal detector, you know, across the ground and see what pops up. He's found caches of Roman coins and all kinds of good stuff. Well, in the past, before Google Earth became available, he would use old aerial photos and try to look from that bird's eye view of these old photos to see, is there anything odd going on on the ground? Can you see any outlines of maybe an old road or an old stone wall? Because sometimes those things kind of protrude, they kind of bump up underneath the ground, but you really can't see them walking around. You have to really get up high and get a bird's eye view so that you can see these anomalies that happen on the ground. Well, as you can imagine, satellite imagery in Google Earth is perfect for this. This is not something you'd be using Street View for, is it? (laughs) He finds historical treasures by using the satellite imagery in Google Earth. You'd have to get down fairly close to get close enough to really get a view of a particular area, maybe a farm field or a ranch land or something. Uh, He's over in the UK, so I'm sure he's doing much of the, the beautiful rolling hills and farmland that's over there which I got a chance to see for myself up in Derbyshire in June. And my goodness, it's beautiful. And as he spots these anomalies, then he plots them out, maps them, and he gets down on the ground and has his metal detector. And very often he finds treasure. And really, it's not just, you know, it's not monetary treasure necessarily, but it's treasures from the past. It's really history. And when you're in a a location like uh, England, where you've got just incredible deep history. That's pretty exciting. So check it out. Maybe get some ideas. Maybe you'll do a little bit of uh, metal detecting in your neck of the woods and see what you can find. I hear about folks like up in the Northeast, um, or really actually around the US, particularly in the Eastern side, um, where Civil War battles occurred, they might find a button or a bullet or a coin or something. So, you know, all of that comes back together and pieces together our history. Something else that's uh, in the news that's newsworthy that happened not too long ago, a couple months ago, over at Family Search, which is, of course, the free and massive genealogy website that is put together by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. And it's a genealogy website that is absolutely free to use. I certainly hope you're taking advantage of tapping into their resources at familysearch.org. They've added a new way for you to add your memories in audio to the family tree. So in addition to photos, you can now record and upload your own audio. Think about it, being able to tell your stories or interview somebody. Hey, I'm a podcaster. I love this because there's something so personal about the voice, isn't there? You know, some of you have told me, Lisa, you're in my ears as I fall asleep every night. (laughs) I should, I I don't know, maybe I should come up with something to say that, you know, hypnotically, no. Um, But it's a very intimate medium. And it gives us a sense of the person beyond the words, right? Because words is just a fraction of the communication that happens. It's tone, 
its speed, it's all the different elements of our voice. And I just think it's fantastic that they are incorporating audio. So I'll have a link in the show notes for this episode number 231, where you can read up on how this works and the apps. You can put it in the Family Tree app. You can also do it in their Memories app. And these are free apps in your app store on your mobile device. And there are step-by-step instructions on how to upload your audio. So start recording, start telling your stories and think of it this way. If nothing else, you can just do simple annotations on the photographs that you're uploading anyway. Why not tell a little backstory to the photos? I think that's a neat idea. Talking about apps, MyHeritage also had an update fairly recently. They have mentioned on their blog that among the newly introduced features are family timelines, the ability to view family trees that you're matched with in the app, the ability to choose which information you extract from smart matches, again, using your app, and an improved research page. So lots of great new updates and innovations going on in the MyHeritage app. And I'll have a link to that blog post as well, so that you can learn all about it. And I like that they include the screenshots so you can kind of follow along and see, you know, where you can find these different features. So that is just some of the latest news that has popped up in the last couple of months. I know I feel like I'm getting further and further behind sometimes in this news because uh, I have been on the road. And so I, I collect the ones and hang on to them, the ones that I want to talk about. So I'm always so happy when we get a chance to catch up on them uh, here on the show. Okay, well, coming up next, I do want to hear from you. And then you'll be hearing from Julianne Mangin. talking to us in a little bit about is some of the cemetery work that she's done. So I thought it'd be fun to share with you some of the feedback that we got on one of the blog posts that we published not too long ago was by Join Neighbors. And it's called Three Very Intriguing and Surprising Discoveries that She's Made While Searching Cemeteries. And of course, to leave comments on our articles, uh, you just head to genealogygems.com and click on articles. And you'll see all the articles there starting with the most recent that's what makes it a blog. <laughs> and when you click through on the article, of course, at the bottom, uh, there's a comment section. So you can read the stories and comments and questions from other readers as well as add your own. So I always encourage you to do that. I love the conversation there. Craig chimed in on this uh, cemetery blog post. He says, I've started looking for gravestones and burial places for my ancestors. After finding my paternal grandfather and great-grandfather, I looked for my paternal great-great-grandfather in the same area. No luck. I went to the R.B. Hayes Library in Tiffin, Ohio. I started looking at every page in the burial listing for the township I thought he would be in. And there he was. Last name misspelled. The A had been changed into a K. 
Yikes, that makes a big difference. (laughs) He says, I was able to drive over to the cemetery and locate his stone, still readable after his burial in 1885. I plan to go back to the area this summer to look for his wife, who was buried elsewhere. They were separated. I wish I could get someone to update the lists with the correct spellings to match the gravestone and census papers, but that seems impossible to do. I will continue to visit cemeteries for a long time. Craig, thank you for sharing that. And you know, that brings to mind something that, in fact, it's a news item I didn't mention at the beginning, but it just came across my desk uh, yesterday or today. Family Search, you know, they have indexes, uh, indexing their website, and you come across an error like that. And you're like, ah, you know, you're, you're glad you found it, but it, it just feels terrible that you can't fix it. They have now added the feature that you can start fixing some of these indexed records. So according to the FamilySearch blog, it says in the past, you can come across an incorrect index on FamilySearch and there wasn't much you could do about it. But the newest update on FamilySearch, you can make corrections to names in the index with the ability to edit other details in the entries coming soon. By editing the index, you can help other people locate records and ancestors they might not have been able to find otherwise. And that's exactly what Craig is talking about. I love seeing organizations like this give the community tools so that they can participate because we are in the trenches, right? We're right down in there every single day. So Craig, gosh, that's too bad that they didn't have a way for you to be able to fix it. I wonder if you could write an official letter to the library and um, give them the documentation and the source and all that. So maybe they could go in and, I don't know, put a sticky note, (laughs) something. But that's great. Thank you so much for sharing. Anne wrote in, she says, My brother Ray says we have visited more dead relatives than live ones, trying now to visit the relatives above ground. And I think that's important. In fact, it's really important to keep visiting and connecting with our live relatives because, hey, they're the ones who may be in the driver's seat once we're gone and make the decisions about what happens to our family history research. We got to nurture both sides, don't we? Leroy says, spent many hours walking, crawling, pushing through brush brambles and briars just to find and take pictures of his tombstones. I regret only one such adventure. If I may, my sweetheart and I went to a small cemetery in New Jersey to gather family names and pictures for billion graves and our personal records. While I was taking pictures, my wife was clipping brush and bushes from the stone that identified her family's plot. We had a great day. I filled two clips of pictures, and my sweetheart did a magnificent job on that stone. It was only a few hours later that she started itching that I really looked at the pictures, and I realized that the brush that she had cleared from the stone was poison ivy. Wouldn't have been so bad, but when she found that I'm not affected by poison oak, ivy, or somac, uh, she was not happy. (laughs) Gosh, that's awful. But itching for a good cause, right? Shirley says, I have recently started doing ancestry research, and I have been astounded at what I have found. No creepy tree stories. However, it is nice to know that some ancestors took care to buy family plots, even though they knew eventually the girls might marry and want to be buried with their husband. I found it interesting that both my grandmother and my grandfather are both buried with their individual parents. And finally, Patsy commented on Shirley's comment. So see, it is a conversation. I love this. She says, Shirley's story jogged my memory. 
My mother died in 1934 when I was four years old. She's buried in my father's plot rather than my paternal grandfather's plot. I have wondered for years why the burial was arranged that way and imagine all sorts of situations. Were the families feuding? Was one family more financially able to foot the bill? Did my paternal grandfather not like my father? Hmm. Sharon chimed in with, I checked out this book, and she's talking about Join Neighbors' book, and she says, from the library about a month ago, decided I needed my own copy. All genealogists should read it. It is very informative and entertaining. And she's talking about Join Neighbors' book, uh, The Cemetery Field Guide. I will have a link for you in the show notes. It is a terrific, it's, it's terrific read, and it's terrifically handy, really. If you use our link on the show notes, just hugs to you because we so appreciate that you're really helping make the free podcast available. You know, we get a little something from, I don't know, Amazon or wherever the store is. And it doesn't cost you anything extra. But they send us sort of like a little royalty for sending you their way through our link. And that, my friends, is how we pay the bills around here. So uh, you're helping keep the, the free show alive and well. And let's see here. Marinelle says, about five years ago, I found the farm on which my great-great-grandparents were buried. The tall granite marker with the parents' names had been knocked over. The footstones stacked and several large rocks were around the monument. And it was in the middle of a field that it was being planted and harvested. We made contact with the owner and received permission to have it raised. In the meantime, I found an obituary for a son who was buried on the family farm. I also found an article about a woman who did dousing, contacted her, and she agreed to come perform the dousing. I was videoing it when my phone went totally dead. I had never had that happen, and it was charged. 30 minutes later, it came back on mysteriously. She found two adult women, two adult men, and three toddlers. After further search, I found another obituary for a grown daughter buried there and three toddler grandchildren who died in 1882. She said that the large rocks would have marked the graves. Sadly, they had totally desecrated the family cemetery. But I was excited to learn all I did, and I was startled by the phone totally dying. I think Joy mentioned a a similar type of experience with her camera in her article. So thank you all for joining in on the conversation about Joy Neighbor's article called Three Very Intriguing and Surprising Discoveries That She's Made While Searching Cemeteries. We even had Joy on the show to read that for you, but I'll have a link in the show notes just in case you want to read it for yourself. Coming up next, we're going to check back in with a previously reluctant genealogist, Julianne Manjin. From my proud old dad Who knows that we are winning And I'll bet he's glad For more than any other A line from my old mother Bring me a letter From my hometown As I travel the world talking about genealogy, folks are always stopping me and asking for my advice on organizing and securing their family history research. And my standard answer is plant your family tree in your own backyard and share branches online. 
Planting your tree in your own backyard, it means keeping one master family tree in a software file right there on your own computer. That gives you ownership, control of privacy and security, and one central place to organize everything that you learn about your family. And of course, my software choice and the one that I use is Roots Magic. I find that its tree building tools are second to none. And with Roots Magic Web Hints, you can see what record hints are available on FamilySearch, Find My Past, and My Heritage. And now you have the ability to synchronize your Roots Magic database with your ancestry tree and get those ancestry.com web hints right there inside of Roots Magic. These are features that are really critical and they're exclusive to Roots Magic. So plant your tree today in Roots Magic and watch it grow. Get started at rootsmagic.com. Well, you may recall that last year in Genealogy Gems podcast episode 219, we explored the tragic story of the Medi family, and it was brought to life by the genealogical research of Julianne Mangin. And it was a riveting case study of the twists and the turns that genealogy can take all of us on. Well, now you may recall that Julianne had originally been kind of a reluctant genealogist, but after a 30-year career in library science including 14 years as a librarian and website developer for the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., she just couldn't help but try to find the truth in those piecemeal stories that were coming to her from her mom. Well, Julianne's been continuing to research and continuing to write, and I just thought it would be fun to check back in with her and see what she's been up to. Welcome back to the show, Julianne. Oh, thank you. I know that you have been continuing to write on your blog, and I think this is one of the expressions of the the ongoing research that you've been doing. And of course, you can find Julianne's blog at juliannemangin.com, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. So Julianne, um, I've just been reading one of your most recent blog series, which is called Alice's Story. And I'd love to have you share a little bit with the audience about, you know, what this is about and, and the research that kind of went into it, because I can see it's just, it's it's been a really interesting read. So start us off. Tell us, who is Alice? Okay, Alice is my great aunt, uh, my maternal grandfather's sister who died in 1933. And I didn't know anything about her, and uh, we didn't have any pictures. Um, So when I took over the genealogy from my mom's work, I found my great-aunt Alice and my grandfather listed in this genealogy of his mother's side, which was the Beatty family. And it just sort of had a cryptic note that she was residing at the Exeter School, which to me first sounded like a boarding school. Now, what, uh, now what uh, area of the country are we talking about here? We're talking about Rhode Island. Okay, so up in the Northeast. And had you ever met your grandfather? Oh, yeah, I did. Uh, he lived with us the last four months of his life after Grandma died. Wow. So this Alice, his sister, she hadn't really come up in conversation. She hadn't come up in the stories you were hearing from your mother? 
Uh, no, she just mentioned having seen a photo of her when she was a child, and other than that, no details. So I researched what the um, Exeter School was and very quickly found out it was actually not a boarding school, but an institution for the, uh, quote, feeble-minded. And given that I'd already found out how many other ancestors of mine had been committed to, like, state hospitals, I was just shocked at that. Here's another instance of one of my ancestors being institutionalized and made me think about what it means to have so much of that in your family's past. Right, because that, that really came out in the other research that you did that we talked about in the previous episode. And and just to give folks a kind of a sense of the time frame here. So I see here in your blog, you were saying that the photograph that your mom was talking about that she said that you came across was probably one that had kind of been lost in the family in the 1930s. But there was some evidence on it. it did it have some information about, you know, the, the time frame, who the person was that Alice was in this picture? Well, I surmised a lot of what I said in the blog post about when and where it happened. I mean, I surmised because I knew that my mom only lived with her parents up to the age of 10, that she had seen the photo before she had to go into the county home. So that would put it in the 30s, which coincidentally was the same time that Alice died at the Exeter School. So I kind of put two and two together and thought, well, maybe Grandpa found out that Alice had passed away and he was going back and looking at his photos and remembering her. And then Mom was there when he did that, so she got to see this photo. But the photo, I think, was from um, like around 1900 when Grandpa was a child and when his uh, sister Alice was still living with the family. And she was his older sister, right? Yeah, I think she was a good nine years older than him. And the other children that his parents had had all died in infancy. So um, that was his only sister. So where did you start? You, You have a photo, you have, gosh, there's another relative here. You have a name and kind of a time frame. So where did you start to try to unravel what had happened to her? Well, when I research my family, I I kind of do it in two levels. One is to get the basic genealogical information, you know, so I went and, you know, got her death certificate. But on the other hand, what I also do is like, I want a story. I want, you know, I want to know what her life was like. And with very little to go on, I went and studied the history of the institution she was in just to give myself a sense of that, even though I can't really know what actually happened to her. I think that's a step in the genealogical process that sometimes it's easy to skip over because we get in a hurry, we're excited to find things out. But getting yourself kind of, I guess, rooted into the place and the time and the context, doesn't Mm -hmm. that just give you a much better sense of kind of where to maneuver the research once you're, you're really familiar with the surroundings? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I think it meant a lot more to me to know what kind of place that she was in and how she was probably treated. I do go for the story probably in a reaction to the fact that I didn't get much in the way of a continuous narrative from my mother, and I just really crave it. And Mm -hmm. so I'm kind of relentless in trying to find whatever detail I can to construct some story that I can live with about who this person was and how that person affected who I become. Right. Now, your, your grandfather, Frank Tillotson, 
Uh, he was married to Lydia. So they have Alice, the oldest child. And then there's your grandfather. Were there other children in the house when they were small? Well, there was um, there were three children that died in infancy. Oh. And so that it was just them. You start to research this school. How quickly did you figure out at what point did she leave the family? Well, I relied on census records. And um, I think that one of the things that was helpful was that um, Rhode Island is one of the states that does its censuses, you know, in the five-year mark between the two national censuses. So right, they're conducting it, a state census. Right. That fills in things a little more. You know, then you're only following it at five-year increments instead of 10-year increments. I really had to look at the records more than once before it started to dawn on me. In each of these records, like the census of 1905 and then 1910 and I think 1920, it became very clear that the people who were taking care of Alice in these institutions did not know where her family was. And that that was kind of a shock to me. It's like, did they just dump her there? I mean, it made me very sad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I think that like in uh, 1905 Rhode Island State Census, they said where her parents were born, and they just put New England, question mark. And I thought that was just very odd. Right. And you saw other inmates, if you will, or people who were living there boarding at the school. They had perhaps places where their parents were from. So was it clear that some people they did know where they had come from? Um, not in the way the Rhode Island census is done, but in definitely in the U.S. census, you can look down the lines and see where the birthplaces of, you know, the father and mother are. It was pretty clear for other of the inmates. Mm-hmm. So it was a, it was kind of surprising to find that they didn't seem to know where Alice's parents were. Now, some folks listening may have never used that state census that's happening in between the years of our U.S. federal census. Where did you track that down? Did you go to Ancestry or somewhere else? Oh, yeah, I went to Ancestry. Um, I I really used all the hints that I could. And, and so in a way, some of this stuff just came to me. But uh, after a while, you know, you see the Rhode Island census come up in various things enough that in in more of my research, I became more proactive in using that census to figure out where my relatives were. So that's how I started. Right. So how old do you think Alice was when she entered the school? See, I think she might have been 13 or 14. I know she was 13 when her mother died, and then her father was trying to take care of her himself. And um, somewhere in there, I think, she was put in the Oak Lawn School for Girls, actually. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, the Exeter School for the Feeble-Minded was the third stop in her trip through the uh, state institutions. First, she was sent to the Oak Lawn School for Girls. How accessible were records for institutions like this? Because, of course, most, I would assume at this point, are no longer in existence. So did you have any luck actually accessing any of these institution records? No, I did not. And uh, it was kind of too bad. But, for example, when I found out she was at the Exeter School, I uh, tried to find out if there were any records pertaining to her time there because she was there for 20 years and all they could say was they had some kind of uh, entry register, admission register that said 
what date she had come there, and that's all they could tell me. There was just nothing. I, I see on the blog post, you actually have a photograph of the sewing room at Oaklawn with the girls sitting mm-hmm. and sewing, and you have a postcard that's the Rhode Island State Almshouse. So how did you go about finding some of this imagery to kind of fill in the gaps? The postcards came out of probably a suggestion I learned from you about going on to eBay and looking for things related to your family. Ah, and uh, <laughs> Yeah, and what was very surprising was how often state hospitals had postcards. Who knew, you know? Right. <laughs> and um, I have a thought about that, too, because, for example, my grandmother and a number of her relatives were patients at Norwich State Hospital in uh, Connecticut, And I have collected, I think, perhaps about a dozen different postcards with different views of the hospital. And it's just amazing. But I think part of it was that it was a landmark. So that would be Mm. why a postcard of that would be interesting. And then also, at certain points in history, it was a matter of civic pride to say, we've built this grand building to take care of these unfortunate people. And they were proud of it. So that's another reason why it might have been featured on a postcard. Of course, attitudes towards state hospitals changed a lot by the middle of the 20th century. I don't think it was the kind of place you'd want to have a postcard from. Right. I don't think they were for the use of the patients. I think these were like um, cities did them like as for tourism. Right. Like you would go to Washington, D.C., and you could get one of those postcard booklets with a collection of different views mm-hmm. of the city. I think it was more part of that. And one of the things that I, I still look for postcards, uh, even though I think I've got pretty much one of each, I keep hoping someday I'll find one where there's something written on the back, something sort of revelatory of the institution <laughs> But that's just because I'm this dogged researcher that keeps hoping I can learn more, you know. Mm -hmm. Now, I noticed in blog post number one, you did some quotes and drew out some information from information that appeared to be written by some of the doctors involved with these institutions. Mm -hmm. What kind of materials were you working with there? Well, yeah, what I did was most of these institutions had annual reports. If they were state institutions, they had to report to the legislature or the government about what they were doing. And so I searched for those. I searched for them in the Library of Congress catalog um, because I live near there and I go there often. But anybody could do a search like that, And for example, in WorldCat, and look for the institution's names and see what kinds of annual reports are available. And so that's what I did for the Oaklawn School and for the State Almhouse and um, also for the Exeter School. And uh, they sometimes have pictures in them, which is how I got the um, picture of the sewing room at the Oaklawn School for Girls. Right. So worldcat.org. I would imagine Google Books would be a great resource for that as well. Yeah. And of course, when you're working with the older books that might be in the public domain, then yes, you could use some of the imagery and (laughs) that. What a rich resource. So let's go back to the timeline. So she's about 13. um, Mm -hmm. And she's in this institution. How do things progress from there? Well, she was there. I'm not sure why. I think she was kind of functional. I think they thought her mental age was around six or seven, which meant she could do basic self-care things and take care of herself. I don't know whether she was a behavioral problem or not, but 
for whatever reason, she was there. And then she became too old for the Oakland school. There was nowhere else to put her. They didn't know where her parents were. She was a ward of the state, so they put her in the state almshouse. And I think that situation was worse. Uh, if you read the description that I put in that blog post, you know, it was they just lumped a lot of people in the basement, basically, and let them, you know, fend for themselves. It was just not a very healthy place. Oh, it's just it's hard to imagine, isn't it? I know what our ancestors have, have gone through. Is that where she died? And ultimately, or did she? No, yeah, she moved on again. So. In 1908, um, the state started a school for the feeble-minded, the Exeter School, and it first only took boys, so it wasn't until 1913 when they opened a dorm for girls, and I believe that the first thing they did was go to the almshouse and find all the people who were inmates there that were more appropriate for the Exeter School and move them, and so it's. I think it's... Probably that's how she ended up there. And the other reason I think that's so is the interesting thing about death certificates of people who die in institutions, they often say how many years that person had been residing at whatever institution it was. So I kind of backdated it. And it it all lined up with the idea that Alice was one of the first uh, female inmates moved from the almshouse to the Exeter School. Hmm. And I see that you turned to newspapers to get more on that. There's an article here that you have Exeter School described as mere, quote, dumping ground. Yes. Wow. So newspaper resources, uh, how did you tackle that part of your research? Oh, well, I'm just, I'm a great user of the uh, digital newspapers. I've just found so much. It's just really rich with information. And also, it was good because it countered what was in the annual reports. You know, in the annual reports that the institution would do in order to report to, you know, whoever they're responsible, the governor or the legislature, they try to make themselves look really good. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, that's a biased version of what's going on. So this newspaper report was a counter to, you know, and I had to figure out where in the middle between these two versions of reality was what my great aunt Alice was living with. Right. So you didn't have the advantage of being able to interview somebody who had been there or had heard about the stories. And even that could have been biased. Um, Mm -hmm. But you cobbled together other sources searching not on the name of your ancestor, but you're searching on the places, the times, the, the things around her to try to bring that together. And it really did, as I can see in your series, kind of help fill in the story. It doesn't answer every question and you don't even, you know, you don't say, as you said, that uh, it's all exact. But it's fascinating how we can reconstruct somebody's individual story through these more general resources. Yeah, that's true. And and I think it's affected all the research I've done. And one of the things I started having a mental thought as I'm writing about what's going on is that these institutions were like characters in the story. They they were a player. You can't put them on your tree so much, but you can figure out that they're an entity that has a strong role in the narrative. And that's what I was trying to do is uh, represent that as well as I could. I think that's a fascinating way to put it. I love that, Julianne, because 
we we tend to focus on just the people, but places are in a sense characters in the story too. And and when you describe looking at them that way, I could see how that in a sense kind of helps crystallize or you know make it more clear in our heads how to go about researching them. It's not that different mm-hmm. than people. In some ways, yeah. Yeah. We'll be back with more from Julianne Manchin right after this. Our sponsor for this episode is MyHeritage. They have over 70 million members worldwide. Now, if you're serious about making connections in the country where your ancestors once lived, hands down, MyHeritage is the place that you want to be. I uploaded my family tree hoping for a breakthrough in my German family line, and that breakthrough happened really quickly. I received a message from a distant cousin in Germany, and that was my first international cousin contact. And MyHeritage has a unique and powerful search system. It's called Record Matches. Now, this constantly calls over 8 billion historical records for your family. It's also the only family history interface out there using semantic analysis to search newspaper articles, books, and other free text documents. So find out what MyHeritage can do to help you grow your family tree. Visit MyHeritage.com. It's free to get started, so there's really no reason to wait. And there are billions of reasons to try it out. Visit MyHeritage.com. So take us to the end of the story, because, you know, part three of Alice's story is really fascinating, and it it takes you eventually to the cemetery. So tell our listeners this story. This is tremendous. I just started feeling very sad about Alice, and um, I, I felt a need to put myself in her place as well as I could. And I did this with the other people that I researched, like my grandmother and my mother. I, wa- I wanted to be where things played out to see if I could just connect a little bit more, empathize a little bit more with what had gone on. Of course, with Alice, all I had was finding out that because she had died at the Exeter School and because no one came to claim the body, she was buried there, which seemed very lonely to me. Absolutely. Yeah, so I, I just felt this need to do something about it. And I guess I'm I started getting better at following my instincts about these things. And, of course, it did help that I was retired by the time I did this. So I could say, let's go to Rhode Island and (laughs) go to a cemetery, you know. But I did my research first. And um, one of the things that helped a lot is Rhode Island, the state, they're very serious about their historic cemeteries. There's Rhode Island Historic Cemetery Commission, and they look after all of these old cemeteries and I just think it's really wonderful how they advocate for them as evidence of our society in years past and that we need them so that we don't forget Mm -hmm. and and so it was my opportunity to not forget my aunt by going there and so um, I drove out there and they had moved the cemetery actually from the grounds of the school 
which was, as I said, called the Exeter School, but was later called the Ladd School. And when the Ladd School was closed, I don't know what they planned to do with the property, but they wanted to move the cemetery out. So the uh, Veterans Cemetery in Exeter agreed to take it on. So they moved 84 graves into the rear end of the Veterans uh, Cemetery, and that's where I found Alice's grave. But there was a little more that happened before I actually found her grave. Exactly. As with so many cemeteries, so many of these headstones uh, were in marginal condition at best and covered Mm -hmm. with moss. And um, you did manage to find her, didn't you? Yes, I did. Um, I drove over there very optimistic, thinking, you know, there's only 84 people in this little piece of the cemetery. I'll find her in a snap. And then I get there and it's like, oh, my goodness, look at the condition of some of these stones. I mean, I kept thinking, well, maybe she's one of the ones that's legible. So I looked at every single one and then I didn't find her. And I thought, oh, my. I was so disappointed. I really wanted to say I'd stood there and you know, paid my respects to her. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking around thinking about what to do. And one of them, the mossy ones catches my eye and I see that there's the letter A. I could see a letter A very distinctly, but nothing else. And so I knelt down and I traced my finger through the moss, seeing if I could find the inscription underneath the moss. And indeed, that was um, Alice's gravestone, which simply said Alice Tillotson. There was no other information on it. Uh, So I knew that in advance. And so the trip wasn't really about, you know, going and finding the gravestone and maybe there'll be dates or names or towns or whatever that would give me more genealogical information. I knew what I was doing was going there because of her. Mm -hmm. I went through the moss with my finger three times because I know that, you know, wishful thinking can make you say, oh, I think um, I think this is it. But, you know, I wanted to be sure. I'm, I'm kind of a, a real stickler for exactness. And, in fact, my husband was with me, and I think I might have asked him. I said, hey, come over here and do this with me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, now it seems like overkill, but I think it's part of my approach to things is I just – feel like I want to I want to say the truth and I if I say that I found her gravestone I wanted to be rock solid sure but I was uh, after three times through and I think I was kind of moved by the experience because I thought you know nobody'd visited her in like 80 years or something and so I thought well here I am I haven't forgotten you and I also feel like we shouldn't forget what people like Alice went through in the past because um, they have no voice. And as, you know, government agencies make decisions about services to people um, who have disabilities like hers, I think we just need to know about what the mistakes of the past are so we don't repeat them. I think that's very well said. And I can imagine how much it meant to you, but you have to believe it meant something to her, too. I mean, nobody wants to be forgotten, do they? And Mm-mm. it doesn't matter uh, how long they live or how intelligent they were. They're all mm-hmm. human beings. And that's just that's just tremendous that you took that kind of time. It reminds me of the story, Julianne, of when you went and found the shed, right? Mm-hmm. Where some of your other family lived, where we talked about that in 219. And, and the power of being there in person, there is just something that you just feel it makes a difference, doesn't it? 
Yes, I think it does. And I've um, gotten pretty nice comments from readers of my blog and from friends who've spoken to me personally. And one of the statements made was, you gave that person their dignity back. Yes. Like, you know, they were worth, they were worth, uh, you know, a 300 mile trip to Rhode Island Mm -hmm. to, to, to pay respects. So that's a way of giving them their dignity back. I like that. That's what something we can all strive for. Mm-hmm. And on a a little bit more of a, a fun, upbeat note, as you talked about, you research places, sometimes, which aren't people, but you research them kind of like people. And you've been researching other things that aren't exactly people, haven't you? Yes, I have. <laughs> Tell us about the pet cemeteries. Well, um, my current obsession, I guess it is, is um, I live about four miles from one of the oldest pet cemeteries in the United States. It's called uh, Aspen Hill Memorial Park. That's what it's called now. In the past, it was called Aspen Hill Cemetery for Pet Animals. And I'd grown up in this area, and we always called it the Aspen Hill Pet Cemetery. So it's it's always been um, there, but I, I had never bothered to visit it. And then about seven years ago, I went there. I was actually searching for a geocache. Uh, if you know what a geocache is, uh, it's a sort of an online treasure hunt game. And it took me to this pet cemetery. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know about the pet cemetery. I've heard about it for years. And I go in and it was like, wow. It was really uh, a very moving experience in the same way that I felt about going to any cemetery and, and uh, remembering the people who were there, except for mostly these are pets. Right. Some impressive statues uh, and memorials I saw in the photographs that you posted in your blog. Yeah, not as much as I would like. I think there's about, um, there are only three monuments to pets that include animal statues, which I think is really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them makes me laugh. I can't get a good picture of it because it needs to be clean. But um, it, it's a picture of a grumpy looking like bulldog. But his name is Bunny. (laughs) I just think that's so cute. Like you walk around this place. I think in years past it was beautifully landscaped and now not so much. Uh, But um, it's still very evocative of the way people connect with their pets and how strongly they feel about them. In some ways, they're more effusive in their inscriptions to pets than you see on gravestones for people. Right. And it's interesting because, of course, it's it's very in right now. I think people are more obsessed with their pets than ever. But tell mm-hmm. us about how far back some of these dated. I mean, this was an old pet cemetery. That's right. Um, it uh, opened in 1920. And at the time, there were a few others in the country, but the closest one was in New York State. And so this was it for uh, the region near Washington, D.C., Baltimore, and you know, maybe even extending as far south as Richmond and north to Philadelphia. And I think at first it it was really more wealthy people who did this. But, um, yeah, the the very first burial was in um, August of 1920, and it was a St. Bernard. But there's a variety of animals buried there. Um, I would say, of course, most of them are dogs and quite a few cats, too. But there's horses and um 
squirrels and oh, wow. <laughs> um, it, any animal that you can have as a pet and become attached to, you know, that's an option. You can, you know, bury them in a pet cemetery if you want to. I like to tell about one in particular, and that is what kind of got me started on the blog. You know, I'm walking around and I'm reading all these loving, emotional inscriptions, and then I see this one that says, Napoleon, the weather prophet of Baltimore. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and it has dates, which really helps. And I thought, well, I can go online and look at the old Baltimore Sun. And sure enough, there was a white Persian cat who had a reputation for predicting the weather. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. And it, what what brought Napoleon his fame was that um, in 1930, there was a regional drought. And there hadn't been rain for weeks, but here's this cat who has a habit of every time that it's about to rain, he sleeps with his head between his two front paws, which I think is a weird position for cats. And so when Napoleon did that in the middle of the drought, his owner called the newspaper and said, it's going to rain, the drought's <laughs> over. And they said, you, you're you nuts. You know, the Weather Bureau says it's no rain is expected for a long time. Well, the next day it rained. Wow. Oh, my god! And gosh. they kind of called her back, and she be, they wrote a story about her. And for the last six years of Napoleon's life, she got many phone calls from people having, you know, outdoor weddings that wanted to know what the weather was <laughs> going to be like, or um, farmers. And uh, when Napoleon died, he got a nice gravestone in Aspen Hill Memorial Park, and he got Probably a pretty big obituary in the Baltimore Sun, like bigger than most humans get. So, oh my god! I just find that very amusing. That's hysterical. But, it makes me wonder how did the owner figure out the first time the cat sleeps with his head between his paws, and then makes the connection when it rains the next day. Yeah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't clear in what I read, but um, so that was um, just an example of the kind of stories that I found and I thought, man, this would make a good book or a blog or something. So I started collecting these stories and putting them in this blog and uh, I've been doing it since, um, I think it's since uh, February 2018. Oh, so you have been at this for a while. Well, I see there are several posts here and all of you listening can go check it out. It's PetCemeteryStories.net. And I, you must have a link to this also from your Julian Mansion blog, right? Uh, probably somewhere I don't have <laughs> somewhere on there. <laughs> where, but I mean, I think there's a, an about me page that shows some of the other things that I do besides the genealogical work I've been doing. Right. Well, we're all interested in these fascinating cemeteries, and you certainly found some. So uh, you can check those out. And I see you've even got an article here on Rags, the war hero. And mm -hmm. I think I've even talked about him here on this show. So you've always been up to interesting stuff. So are you going to continue the Pet Cemetery blog? And is there anything new on the horizon for Julianne Mangin? As far as the Pet Cemetery goes, I'm, I'm there every week at least. I, I need to keep an eye on it because the organization that owns it isn't on site. And so, you know, I just feel a need to make sure that everything's okay there. But I've also recently been working with them to identify the humans that are buried there. Mm -hmm. And actually, there are at least 50 humans buried there, and there may be more. And um, so I'm working to help them, you know, identify as many as we can. So that's what's going on at the Pet Cemetery. And then in um, 
JulianneManchin.com, that really represents my genealogical work that I did for a memoir I've written called Secrets of the Asylum, which has not yet been published. So I'm using that blog to get the word out about the kind of work I do. And, you know, hopefully someone will recognize that. And, and hopefully get that published, you know, and have it out there where everybody can read. I'm sure it'd be a fascinating read. I hope so. <laughs> Well, fantastic. Hey, it's always good to catch up with you. I love your storytelling. And I love uh, the narrative that you put around the stories of ancestors and the stories of the pets of the ancestors. So keep up the great work and, and stay in touch. So we get to check back with you and see what you're up to in the future. Okay, thanks so much, Lisa. You know, I really think your podcast is a you know wonderful service to the genealogical community. And for me to be asked to be speaking on it is a real privilege. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining me here for Genealogy Gems podcast episode number 231. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, You might have heard something that you want to follow up on. I've got it all written up for you in the show notes. So head to genealogygems.com, hover your mouse over podcast and click on Genealogy Gems podcast. Then you'll just click on the link for episode 231. Everything's there. Lots of photos, lots of links. And of course, If you are using the Genealogy Gems podcast app, I hope you are on your phone. Wow, right here on the episode itself, if you tap below, you'll find all the show notes there as well. And until we talk again, hey, I hope you follow me over at Instagram. Just do a search on Genealogy Gems podcast and, of course, our Facebook page over at Facebook. And, okay, while you're at it, head to youtube.com slash genealogygems And click the red subscribe button because we've got lots of great videos there and more coming in the future. Thank you so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon. 